This morning's reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and that's beginning at verse 1. And you can find that on page 1187 in the Church Bibles. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we stand, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we prayed before that our lives would be wholly renewed by your Spirit. We know how much work there is to do in our own hearts and lives in so many areas, but not least in this area of our own sexuality. And so we pray today that we would discover your will for us and your mercy for us, the power of your spirit to live lives that please you, and the words that your spirit gives, that we might bear witness to the grace and truth in these matters that your word reveals. We ask it to your Father's glory. Amen. I'll do please be seated and uh, welcome to St. John's. Uh, Welcome to those of you online and uh, if you've not been here over the last few weeks you've arrived at the fourth of a six-part series uh, where we're uh, under the heading of Jesus, Gender and Sexuality uh, where we're tackling some of these uh, difficult, thorny issues, painful in our own hearts, uh, difficult as we look at the world around us that in so many ways uh, so decisively has not simply uh, walked away from Christian convictions on these things uh, but now very often would say that they are immoral uh, and wrong. So in these things we need the Lord's help, we need the Lord's grace. That is what we've prayed for uh, as in uh, previous weeks. Uh, there will be an opportunity for question time after the service. Uh, we've had a lovely little group each week. Uh, uh, please feel free to come and join. It's not been the same group uh, each week. Uh, so you can come and just uh, ask some questions or sit quietly and listen uh, while others do so. And we wrestle with some of these things 
uh, together. We'll gather up here in the side chapel, uh, get yourself a cup of coffee, and then come back and join us for that if you wish to do so. And uh, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, not by putting your hand up, but by asking electronically, you can do that. It allows anonymity uh, if you wish for that. And that is, uh, as in previous weeks, available on the Slido uh, app. Just put in the uh, church office phone number and you'll find the page where you can ask uh, a question. Uh, Maybe something to do with what I'm going to say today, or it could be something that's come up in previous weeks, or something you're hoping that I'll cover in the remaining uh, two weeks after today. I had an email like that last night, um, which I was grateful for, and uh, which will help me as I continue my preparation for the remainder of this series. Those of you who know me well will not be surprised if I tell you that I have not prepared these uh, entirely in advance, such that the ink was dry uh, many weeks uh, beforehand. Uh, Again, those of you who know me well will not be surprised to know that the uh, finishing touches happened about half past nine on a Sunday morning. Uh, So there is ample time for you to influence uh, me and to ask those questions that you would really like to be answered So we're going to be uh, talking particularly about human sexuality, uh, really by way of introduction today. uh, That will occupy us over the next two weeks as well. Uh, But the language of gender and sexuality uh, is one that it can be quite hard for us to be clear in distinguishing uh, the one from the other. Uh, A lady who uh, I've found enormously helpful in her writings, Rosaria Butterfield, Uh, She's a lady who has a wonderful testimony of coming to Christ uh, and of finding uh, his forgiveness, uh, having been uh, devoted to a lifestyle uh, sexually that was entirely contrary to the will of God. Uh, She found not only forgiveness, uh, but the Lord's uh, help in uh, turning around in that area uh, of her life. So uh, she's someone who struggled, found the Lord's grace and truth, and now lives uh, with his help very differently. Uh, and uh, some of her books uh, I would recommend uh, to you. Uh, But she says uh, on this, which I thought was so helpful, uh, sexual orientation is who you want to go to bed with, and gender identity is who you go to bed as, or who you want to go to bed as. Uh, So last week, uh, we explored the topic of gender, gender identity, uh, a subject that has been rapidly developing in recent years, uh, particularly coming to public consciousness in the last seven, eight, ten years, uh, but uh, in many ways building on uh, foundations uh, in uh, modern uh, philosophy uh, that were new uh, and go back no further, really, uh, than the Second World War. And uh, we were exploring uh, what wasn't a controversial uh, text until about 10 years ago. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we saw last week uh, that in God's purposes, we are made as human beings in his image. And we reflect that image precisely in the way that we are made either male or female. And that we are made such uh, by the creator's purpose from the moment of our conception uh, and called uh, by his grace uh, to live uh, with that God-given vocation of being a man or woman in Christ as we come to him. Uh, Today, though, uh, we are considering uh, this question of sexuality. Uh, And though, of course, there is more to say to it uh, than this, uh, in a sense, it all roots back to uh, Genesis 2. Uh, You'll remember, if you've been with us, uh, that we've seen how Jesus roots uh, his ethic around gender and sexuality in those early chapters of the Bible, uh, where the creator laid out what he intended for his creation and for us. 
Who are we? We're made in his image, male and female. And what is the context for sexual intimacy? It is marriage. Jesus returns to Genesis 2.24 as the Magna Carta of marriage and the place for sexual intimacy in his own teaching on several occasions, as do his apostles. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. We will come back to Genesis 2 a little later this morning. Uh, But it's clear, even in that context, uh, that in those words that God speaks uh, in the presence of Adam and Eve, that he is looking far ahead to us who would live uh, centuries, millennia later. Because, of course, Adam didn't have a mother and father. He was directly created by God. And so when God speaks these words to him, He is speaking not directly to him, but through him to us. This is God's design for human intimacy, marriage, the union of a man and woman into one flesh. Now, of course, the reality is that the world in which we live uh, does not reflect that uh, purpose of the creator. And that's not true of them out there. It's true of us in here. There is no them And I hope that message has been clear, uh, particularly in those early couple of uh, sessions as we began to get our bearings for looking at this topic. Uh, There is no them, there is just us. We who struggle and fail and need endlessly to find the Lord's forgiveness and power to live in a way that pleases him. But I found this particularly striking that in 1942, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote uh, his book, The Screwtape Letters, Uh, which were uh, in the form uh, of a senior devil giving advice to a junior devil on how best to tempt uh, the Christian uh, away from trusting Christ and into following the patterns of the world. It's worth hearing uh, in the uh, lips of Screwtape, uh, from the lips of Screwtape, uh, something that sounds very contemporary when we come to this issue of sexual morality or rather immorality. Never forget that when we devils are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemies, that is, on God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All we can do is encourage the humans to take their pleasures, which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees, which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is its least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Friends, isn't that strikingly prophetic? Uh, as uh, we look at the world around us in the 2020s. Uh, all the statistics tell us uh, that people, uh, since the sexual revolution, have been le- having less and less sexual relations, even as our culture talks more and more about sex and invents more and more different ways of doing it with different people in different ways, such that when you go into the supermarket, you just want to turn the magazines over so that your children do not see the covers. And it would, of course, be futile anyway, uh, since the vast majority of such sexual immorality is available at the click of a button on Google. But this is the world in which we live. Here is a good gift of God, human sexuality. Sex is not part of the fall, it's part of the creator's gift. 
And what is the devil at work doing? Well, trying to cause us to pervert that pleasure so that we long more and more for that which gives us less and less satisfaction. We look at the world around us and we see the dreadful uh, success that the devil has had on so many of our fellow uh, human beings. We look into our own hearts and see the dreadful success he has had in our own souls as well. Uh, We need not just to know what is right, we need to find God's uh, forgiveness. Uh, We need to find his help to live differently and to be confident that the story of his word is the story our culture needs to hear. Uh, Though it angers our culture, though it considers itself superior to it, in the end it will only destroy itself if it does not turn back to the Lord who gave it life and who now offers mercy. For we live in an idolatrous age. Again, Rosaria Butterfield uh, in that same passage where she describes uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, she goes on to say this, both are driven by the idol of sexual autonomy. We desire in these things uh, to say, close your dusty old book, Christians, because we have found a new and liberating way. At least that's what we will say outwardly. And yet inwardly, we have never been more cold and lost and hurting as we are in these things today. But we have a God who rescues us from idolatry. That's the whole point of the gospel, in order that we might know and serve him. And yes, that has implications far beyond the sexual realm, but it includes the sexual realm as well. This is what Paul uh, said to the uh, Thessalonian Christians. Uh, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God uh, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We live in an age uh, that is as never before or perhaps uh, never since uh, the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans uh, cherished sex as an idol. And the gospel that comes in that culture therefore speaks with particular power to ours because it's a gospel that calls us to turn from our idolatry and to find rescue and refuge and new power to live God's way in Jesus Christ alone. This is good news. This is for our day. Uh, Jesus uh, calls us to repent. Well, that's what turning to God from idols is. We have to recognize the idolatry in our own hearts, in the world around us that has shaped us more than we care to admit, and hear Jesus' call to repentance. And as we hear that call to repent, so we're called to believe the good news. That is, as we come to put our trust in Christ, who is the Son of the living and true God, we will find forgiveness, and we will find his acceptance By his death, Jesus rescues us uh, from God's judgment. There is wrath coming upon the world. Uh, The scriptures are clear that that wrath of God is coming uh, for all of our rebellion, specifically including our sexual rebellion against God. But by his death, Jesus rescues us. We need not despair, uh, no matter what our own history or the culture in which we live. God's grace is more powerful than our most a concerted effort at perverted rejection of him. 
Repent and believe the good news. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, this is a gospel that brings us to know the God who has our lives in his hands and who will one day lead us to a place that is renewed and perfect again in the way in which men and women relate to each other. More of that in the next couple of weeks. But as we await his return So we have work to do. Uh, So we are called to serve the living and true God. Uh, To serve him in many ways, uh, but to serve him particularly in the area of our sexual morality. With our gendered bodies to use them in a way that pleases him. In whatever circumstance uh, we find ourselves, single or married, we have a calling from God. And as he reveals his will to us, Uh, We're ready for that passage uh, that Jackie read for us. Uh, You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Uh, If you've got that passage open, uh, we're just going to spend a few minutes uh, here, although we are, as uh, we have been throughout this series, going to move to other places uh, as well. Uh, Negatively, we see in this passage uh, that this matter of uh, sexual morality for the Christian is not optional. God does not give us suggestions. He reveals his will for us in this. Uh, and yet so often, uh, this is the stumbling block. Uh, if I'm honest, this was the stumbling block for me uh, before I committed uh, to Christ and uh, my first year at university. I knew the gospel, I knew what I needed to do, but this was something I did not want to surrender to the Lord. As I then uh, became a Christian and read the story of Augustine, uh, and as I met a few other people, I discovered this is not a solitary account Remember the famous prayer of Augustine, Lord, give me chastity, but give me chastity later. That's what kept him from committing to Christ. He had the theology, he knew the gospel, but he would rather live a life of sexual immorality than yield to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. You see, fallen sexuality is an idol, an idol that keeps us from turning to Christ. So let's not be deceived about this. We can't have Christ and sexual immorality. We cannot worship Christ and an idol. We must make our choice. This is not a suggestion. So don't even pretend to be a Christian if you're just not going to bother here. Uh, These instructions, Paul says, come with the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's not to say Don't pretend to be a Christian if this is an area in which you struggle and find that you fall and need the Lord's mercy and his help and which you're a work in progress. That just makes you normal. Now the warning is, don't try and play fast and loose with God. Don't say, I'll have the benefits of being a Christian, but I have no intention of yielding in this area of my life to the Lord. He cannot have both God and an idol. Paul warns most severely, the Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. It's not optional. It's not easy either. Uh, Sexual immorality is the natural pathway for our sinful hearts. And that's not just true of those of us uh, who uh, didn't grow up uh, in a Christian home. Uh, It's true of the natural inclination of all of our hearts. 
And the more sins we have indulged in in this area, the more like the water going over the stone, the pathway has been carved, the channel gets deeper, the harder it is to follow the Lord in the way in which he is leading us. We need the Lord's mercy. We need one another's compassion and support. Neither will this lifestyle be popular. The heathen who do not know God, rather a non-politically correct way of describing the non-Christian world, will be unimpressed with our commitment to sexual morality. They will make fun of you for choosing this way to live. There will be no support from your worldly friends in this way. Indeed, they'll probably tell you you're being unhealthy, that you're foolishly abandoning that which would give real satisfaction just for the sake of a narrow, old-fashioned prudery uh, that is so unnecessary. Well, positively, though, in this passage, God has shown us how to live in his word. Uh, Mercifully for us, living in the early 21st century, uh, he's given these instructions to Christians who were coming out of one of the most sexually depraved cultures that's ever lived on earth. Not matched, really, until our own day. So let's not think that God's word is unable to equip us uh, for this. We have Jesus' instructions, uh, and we have the help of God within our hearts through his Holy Spirit. We can know what pleases God in the area of sexual morality. Uh, We can grow in this. Uh, Paul says we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Verse 4, each of you should learn. And so we should expect particularly in the early days of our pilgrimage uh, as we follow Jesus, that we will fall more often, that it will take a while to learn these things, to embed new behaviors. It's not that we will grow to a place where we sin never again. That will come in the age yet to be revealed. But don't lose heart if you find that you have failed often. No, the Lord here uh, gives us the hope that we may grow and learn. It is a matter of love. And not law. In this matter, Paul says, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. When we engage in sexual immorality, if it's with a fellow Christian, then we are damaging them as much as we are ourselves. And if it's with someone who's not a Christian, well, then the witness we are giving to them is entirely contrary to the words we may use or the commitment we may otherwise show to God's people in our lives. Now, when we sin sexually, we sin against not only God, but against others as well. And this is Uh, to pursue the Lord in this matter, the greatest of ambitions. He says it's part of our calling to be holy and and, uh, honorable. It's not a tick list of things. I mustn't do that, and I'll steel myself up just not to do all those wrong things. This is a positive calling. As God looks us in the eye and says, come, be like me. Live in a way that honors me and honors the body and the urges that I have given you in your fleshed existence as a man or woman of God. This is a vocation for us, friends. Uh, not the, uh, the tick list of a killjoy, but rather the uh, desire of God that we might truly flourish in a way that feels so counterintuitive, counter to many of those urges, and certainly contrary to the culture in which we live. But it is God's way, and it is a good way, for he intends these things for our blessing and not our restriction. 
So we ask, therefore, uh, Paul, well, what is this sexual immorality that we must avoid? And it's the wrong question. Or rather, we have to ask it in a different way. God's design for our sexuality, well, now we're back in Genesis 2. For this is a reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You might like just to turn back uh, to Genesis 2 for a moment. We'll spend uh, a couple of minutes in here as we come back uh, to the Creator's pattern uh, for our sexual uh, flourishing in his design and purpose. So Genesis 2, uh, just picking up from verse uh, 15, uh, here we find... Adam and Eve are in, uh, or rather Adam at this point is in uh, the garden. Uh, he is, of course, alone at this point. Uh, but uh, he is told uh, that the Lord who has given him life uh, and who wants him to eat from the tree of life, that is, wants him to flourish in the world he has made, yet gives him this one restriction. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's not because uh, there's one particular kind of physical fruit that will be bad for him. It rather symbolizes and signifies uh, God's role as the one who determines what is good and what is evil. And Adam's command not to eat from this tree is Adam's acceptance that God is the one who defines good and evil. Well, the Lord observes uh, that it is not good for Adam to be alone, verse 18. And the solution that he comes up with uh, is the marvelous design uh, of Eve. Uh, animals are marvelous, but they are not a suitable helper uh, for him. Uh, only the woman uh, can be that. Uh, I love the commentary of uh, Matthew Henry, uh, who says this of the creation of Eve. Uh, the man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined. One removed further from the earth. Or as I like to say to my daughters, uh, they are the Mark II, uh, whereas we men are merely the Mark I. Again, Henry continues uh, as he uh, reflects on God making uh, Eve out of Adam's side. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Adam lost a rib, but in lieu thereof, he had a helpmeet for him, which abundantly made up his loss. Oh, it's quaint, isn't it? And could only have been written in the 1700s, but he's onto something here. Here we are as man and woman um, made by God in his image, and the man and the woman are equal and opposite made to bear God's image, and now to find their union again in the sexual delight of marriage. Well, well, is the man uh, delighted, and so the creator's pattern is revealed. And at the creation, sex was nothing but pure joy. I've tried many times over the years to get couples to let me read verse 25 if they choose Genesis 2 as a marriage reading. I've never yet succeeded in doing this. They always stop at verse 24. But verse 25 is the summit of the passage. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So there were literally no barriers between them. What do you think they did? They were physically perfect. There was nothing else to do. They were living in a balmy environment with no clothes on. Not hard to work it out, is it? Total intimacy, pure trust, 
absolute acceptance, uh, no sin, no shame, just perfect and plentiful sex. That's a good thing. That's what God made us to enjoy as men and women in the covenant and context of marriage. And of course it did not last because Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. In other words, now we human beings claim the right to define good and evil, including what is good and evil in the sexual realm. And with God's curse, uh, with sin rather, comes God's curse. That intimacy is compromised. Where there had just a moment before been nakedness and intimacy, the eyes of both of them were opened, they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Suddenly they were awkward and ashamed in each other's presence. And as Genesis 3 uh, continues, the battle of the sexes and the suffering uh, begins. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In other words, uh, as one commentator puts it, her controlling impulse is matched by his lordly ego. Neither of us come out of it well in that description. And of course, we live in this world. We want to define what is good and evil. That's the nature of the culture in which we live. And the trouble is, God gives us what we ask for. As Paul begins his great uh, letter to the Romans, he says this, uh, we know that God is there and God is real, uh, but then he continues, Although they, they, that is we, knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That is, they exchanged the creator for things he'd made. exchanged God for idols. Now, the truth of God is plain. We've seen it already. Genesis 2, 24. The creator's purpose for sexual immorality is lifelong, exclusive, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. So what, therefore, is the lie? Well, it is everything else. As John Stott uh, puts it, heterosexual and monogamous marriage is the only context in which God intends sexual intercourse to be experienced and indeed enjoyed. The corollary is that it is forbidden in every other context. Those words seep in. We live in a culture that says everything is permissible as long as you have consent. It's the only modern moral rule. There must be consent. God's way says Now, here is my design and purpose. Everything outside of that context, whether it's only fantasized about or actually indulged in, is just wrong. It is a lie. It will not uh, enable you to live a life that pleases me if you indulge in it, and it will not ultimately satisfy you, because I have not designed you to live this way. So to spell it out, uh, by uh, means uh, of... um, looking at some of the words, and we'll do this uh, very briefly indeed, but I want you to see how this one verse 
This Magna Carta of marriage defines not only what is right, but therefore, as we look at it in the mirror, we see what is displeasing to God. So, uh, God designs uh, sexual intimacy between uh, a man and his wife, that there they shall be one flesh. So, fornication, that is, sex with someone you're not married to, falls outside of God's purposes. It is wrong. Living together outside of marriage in a sexual relationship is wrong and displeases the Lord. A man and his wife, not wives. Monogamy is God's plan and purpose. Not polygamy, either serial or in parallel. It is, in fact, the first way in which this blueprint of God is broken as you read through into the next few chapters of the book of Genesis. God's purpose is that husband and wife will be united and no longer two but one, Jesus comments on this verse. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not divide. Our marriages are designed to be durable and divorce is always outside of the will of God. Be united in one flesh, sexual faithfulness both of the heart and mind as well as of the body. Adultery is forbidden of the Lord. And heterosexuality, of course, uh, is here implicit in the design. It is a man and his wife. Homosexual relations are always displeasing to the Lord as well. And when we hear uh, these things, uh, we hear that therefore it is God's will that we should be sanctified and therefore given God's design for our sexuality, We have two choices. If we are single, God's will is that we will abstain from all sexual activity. There are no caveats or subclauses in that. If we are single, we're called to chastity. If we're married, God's will is absolute sexual faithfulness to our spouse. Again, no caveats or subclauses. All other choices are outside God's will. They are neither holy nor honorable in his sight. And if we reject these instructions, well, Paul is emphatic. We do not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, friends, God's word has much more uh, positively to say to both the single and married. uh, And we will give ourselves to that uh, in the remaining two weeks of our series. Now, today we've done nothing but draw out the contours uh, of what is godly in his sight And what, therefore, is outside of his will. I want to close in the last two minutes uh, by uh, dealing with what I hope has just happened in your heart. See, what I hope has happened, not because I, uh, I wish for you to suffer, but because I wish for you to meet with the convicting spirit of God. Uh, What happens in my heart when I read this? And what I hope will happen in your heart as you hear it is that we will come to God and say, I need your forgiveness. I've not lived like this. I may be technically not an adulterer, but do you know what goes on in my heart? It may not be recent, perhaps, but I know the sexual sin of my youth, and still it convicts me. Or perhaps there is active, ongoing sexual sin even amongst us now. You're committed to sexual immorality in the way of internet pornography. You're conducting a quiet affair that you hope no one will find out about. Or maybe the affair is not even out there in the world, but just in here, in the heart. 
Our friends, when we hear the word of God, the law of God, its first purpose is to convict us of our sins and not to leave us there, but to bring us back to the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Those Thessalonians had to acknowledge their idolatry and then as they turned from it, they discovered Jesus rescuing them from the wrath their sins deserved and then empowering them to live a life that would honor him. Jesus told a story. I've put a picture on it of the screen. You could probably guess at the story it is. It's a man with his two sons. And the younger son says, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, uh, he asks for that which is dishonoring to his father. And though he doesn't know it yet, will be destructive to him. And the father gives him what he asks for. God gives us over to the sinful choices of our foolish hearts. And only as we've done that and we begin to realize at the foolishness of our choice, uh, well, so Jesus tells his story. You remember it, of course, the young man uh, takes the inheritance, he spends everything, he has lavish living, and then suddenly it's all gone. And he begins to be in need, uh, and he recognizes his sin. The father gave him over to his sinful choice, uh, and now he recognizes the foolishness and wickedness of it, and he works up the phrases that he will use. I will go back to him, I will say to him, uh, Father, I have sinned. And you can picture him on the journey back, head bowed, again and again repeating the mantra, Father, I have sinned, Father, I have sinned. And of course, the most wonderful part of the story uh, comes when Jesus says, uh, the Father didn't even wait for him to say, Father, I've sinned. He ran out to him, was filled with compassion for him, flung his arms around him and said, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Kill the fatted calf. Let's have a celebration. Friends, this is our story to our world. Not look at us. We've discovered sexual morality, but Look at Christ because he forgave me for all the wickedness in this area of my life and in every other. And he loved me and he accepted me and he took me back and he celebrated because I received his mercy and turned from my idolatry. Friends, that mercy and life-changing grace is available to us today. So let the law of God break you what it's meant to do. Not to leave us broken, but to make us ready to hear the word of mercy. There is one who rescues us from the coming wrath, a wrath that we richly deserve, every one of us, and who takes us as we come to him and cry for his mercy, a cry that even as we, before we've even uttered it, his arms are around us to welcome and have us back. And how do we now live? Well, he's revealed his will. He's given us his spirit that we might begin to live this way. Let's make uh, no uh, concession to the idolatry that is still uh, so alive, uh, so quickly rejuvenated in our hearts. Rather determine, humbly and sincerely, that we will follow the Lord's word and ways in this. And when we fall, then we will find his mercy again. There's more to say, but not this week. Let's pray.
Father, your will and word is clear about what pleases you in the sexual area of our lives. And we confess, Lord, that we have sinned and fall short of your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, in each of us, take from our hearts any hardness, any excuses, any compromise, and bring us today, again, afresh, for the first time, whatever, to know your grace, the cross where you turn aside your wrath, and the power you give us to live lives today from here that are holy and honorable, that are pleasing to you as we leave our sexual immorality in the past and follow you in the pathway to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.